state really does mm -hmm. face financial ruin. And that sounds over the top and hyperbolic, but it's true. And, and they can't get by on coal, oil, and gas production, those royalties and taxes anymore. I think the solution here is not to take a new cleaner source of energy because the electrons are green, um, continue to degrade habitats or fragment habitats, but rather to say, let's we're using the lands in, in a better way here by producing clean energy, but let's be sure we're still putting it in the right places on those lands and not continuing to amplify habitat loss and degradation. This podcast is brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, a joint center at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management. Welcome back to Episode 5 of the Yale Clean Energy Future Podcast. This is a podcast about creating a just and equitable clean energy transition in the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. I'm your host, Katie Eppinger. In our first two episodes on the rural energy transition, we covered the negative health and environmental impacts of the fossil fuel economy. We also talked about potential avenues for job creation that can uplift former coal, oil, and gas workers. Now we're back to the rural energy production side of things after two episodes solely focused on environmental justice, particularly energy justice. Today we're looking at just one piece of Western fossil fuel extraction, which is extraction on public lands. Of course, the same energy justice lessons and themes will persist, so please keep an ear out for those. We know that fossil fuel companies earn healthy profits from selling fossil fuels, but who else makes money from that? Well, it turns out the federal U.S. government, as well as several U.S. states with fossil fuel resources, make a lot of money from fossil fuel extraction. So for some context, the federal government owns about 28% of the 2.27 billion acres of land in the U.S. So the impact that that number has on your day-to-day -day life really varies based on your geography. For me, recording this in the small New England state of Connecticut, only 0.3% of our land is federally owned. But in Nevada, 80.1% of the land is federally owned. In the Western states more broadly, the federal government owns about 50% of the land. This all started because the U.S. government acquired land, uh, both legally and illegally, with the intention of selling it to homesteaders. In the Midwest, where farming is relatively much easier than in the Western deserts, this worked as intended. The federal government offloaded this land to individuals who then used it productively. But in the West, that land transfer never really happened. And so why does it matter that the government still owns so much of Western lands? Well, entities that keep that land, like the Bureau of Land Management, have to now balance several use types, including conservation, recreation, and also leasing it to ranchers or corporations for mining or oil and gas extraction. And as of 2016, 40% of the U.S. coal production came from federal lands. According to the Congressional Research Service, onshore oil and gas leases on federal lands generated $4.2 billion in fiscal year 2019. If that sounds like a lot of money to you, it sounds like a lot of money to me too, but it's actually really cheap for companies to extract these resources on federal public lands, which are our public lands. In fact, bidding for these leases starts at just $2 an acre, and 40% of all bids are sold at that floor price. Then once a company has initially leased it, it has to continue paying like a rent payment on the land, which costs about $2 per acre annually, but it depends on how long you've been renting the site. 
So if your site goes into production, then you owe the government a 12.5% royalty rate. And that royalty rate has not been changed since it was first set in the Mineral Leasing Act in 1920, more than 100 years ago, which was well before we knew the consequences that fossil fuels have on the stability of our climate. What I'm saying here is that the royalty rate has not increased to reflect how much we know fossil fuels really cost taxpayers. So that's the royalty rate. Then there's also the rent price I mentioned. And the last time that the rental rate was updated was in 1987. But there have been a few legislative bipartisan efforts to change this. Most recently in March 2021, there was a proposal to increase the royalty rate, minimum bid or rental rate to make sure that taxpayers are appropriately compensated for using their land. We're joined now by Josh Axelrod, a senior advocate at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He recently wrote a piece positing that the oil and gas leasing program was broken. So I asked him what he meant. It is essentially inefficient. It results in a very large number of acres going under lease uh, to oil and gas companies uh, and a fairly small percentage of those acres actually being developed. And so that suggests that we're leasing too much land. There's not a good process in place to identify the best lands to lease, that the cost of leasing is too low, the cost of, of producing resources on these lands is potentially too low. Once the lands are leased, the rights to develop them and, and use them and manage them are held by the oil and gas companies and no, they're no longer actively managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Would they be put to another extractive use? Would they be put to another thing that would result in a direct payment by an industry or some other entity? Maybe not, but are there other uses? Absolutely. I mean, recreation uses, um, you know, conservation uses, uh, ecosystem rehabilitation, you name it. There are, there are all kinds of other beneficial uses that a lot of these lands could, could be put to. And I think what you see is because there's so many millions of acres under lease, not only does management, kind of landscape level management become more complicated because you have all these parcels where not much can be done. You also have a lot of conflicts with you know, wildlife or ecosystem services where the Bureau could be helping species recover, regenerating habitat, or helping communities come up with alternative economic endeavors that would drive people to them and raise taxes, et cetera, that would benefit communities and states in ways that don't require ongoing oil and gas development. Yeah. And for that land that's leased and used, no matter how you look at it, two bucks an acre is incredibly cheap. It's basically a huge subsidy for the oil and gas industry. But the next really important piece of our story is that no matter how cheap it might be for fossil fuel companies, states still really rely on this revenue. Even privately owned mines in the U.S. have states levy taxes on different parts of their production process, which provides critical financing for some states. So then it follows that changing these tax revenues in fossil fuel producing states can be really destabilizing. Wyoming, for example, has no state income tax, one of the lowest sales taxes in the U.S., and the 10th lowest property tax rate in the country. So since its taxes on its residents and its visitors are so low, the taxes on fossil fuel end up balancing the budget. In fact, 52% of Wyoming's state revenue comes from mineral and energy royalties. And the state really does mm -hmm. face financial ruin. That's Justin Farrell, Associate Professor of Sociology at the Yale School of the Environment, whom we've met in previous episodes. He's a Wyoming native and he studies the American West. And that sounds over the top and hyperbolic, but it's true. 
and, and they can't get by on coal, oil, and gas production, those royalties and taxes anymore. Um, and so, you know, you see these massive cuts they're making to critical services that everyday Wyomingites depend on, um, basic health services, education. And they've already had to slash these to begin with as coal was declining. It's not just about jobs, like jobs in, jobs out. That, that's, that's important, obviously, but it's the economic base of a state of many communities. And so you have this tax base there built on royalties off of coal, oil and gas development. And so you do, you know, you see job losses, but you also see the loss in the tax base and, and really significant losses. Yeah. And when oil prices dipped to zero and below at the start of the pandemic, states saw a glimpse of what could happen if we don't adequately plan for the clean energy transition. Julia Stubel, the Wyoming Public Lands and Energy Manager at the Wilderness Society in Landry, Wyoming, shares more about this. Last year, when the COVID-19 pandemic drove down, decimated consumer demand for travel, for fuels, and a couple other international actions taken from some of our friends in less friendly countries that led to you know barrels of oil being uh, negative price or at zero. There was a bit of an eyes wide open moment for Wyoming, I think, of we knew why that was happening. That's not a climate change policy that did that at all. That's a clear market demand, loss of market demand. And I think it was a bit of a harbinger of like, if we turned off a tap immediately, this is a small taste of what that could look like. So A, here is the importance of a real transition and the need for a deliberately planned transition instead of waiting until the very end and just having something foisted upon us. I can't say this was you know, widely shared, but I think there were those in Wyoming who said, okay, here's a look ahead of a really terrible way to address this change when market demand just falls out. And that means yeah, layoffs, when that means you know, we're not producing, we're not drilling, uh, and there hasn't been a glide path. I think that energized a little bit more of a conversation about what's planning for a transition and making sure it's a transition instead of just a, a shock. Looking at Wyoming specifically, where Dr. Farrell has lived and worked, how can we make up for some of the lost oil revenue and make the transition more of a, quote, glide path like Julia talks about? Here, Dr. Farrell talks about Teton County, Wyoming, a home of Jackson Hole. The average income for the top 1% there is $28 million a year. Elsewhere around the state, people are losing their jobs and we're like, how can we get co-workers into wind and solar? You look at that and you say, okay, top 1% is making $28 million a year. We're not taxing any in terms of personal income tax, taxing that. A simple income tax, again, if you just targeted it toward millionaires and billionaires, not because they're bad people or anything, but it could raise hundreds of millions to, to fund basic health services, basic education, conservation around um, the state reclamation of areas that have been mined. In the case of Wyoming, he argues that cutting oil and gas does not need to equate to losing state services. There are other pools to source funding from, including levying a progressive income tax and other taxes that preferentially tax the ultra-wealthy. COVID, again, is just supercharging this. For example, the luxury real estate industry there I wrote a book on some of these issues called Billionaire Wilderness, looking at the ultra-wealthy in the West. You could say, if you want to speak about it normatively, it's, it's gotten worse because of COVID. So this year alone, an average home, for example, in, in Jackson Hole sold for $4 million, and, and total sales in real estate were over $2 billion. That's record-shattering 
number. So I think it was like $2.3 billion of real estate was exchanged or sold. And so if you look at how much in terms of the gas industry, natural gas, it's almost half the, that real estate number of the gas industry in terms of production and what that brings into the state. And so, you know, Wyoming taxes these billion dollar oil and gas industries and they've gotten by on that and they've, they've done well until now. So why won't they tax this other billion dollar luxury real estate industry that, you know, is, is full of folks using the resources in the state, moving there, you know, living there and buying these properties that are worth tens of millions of dollars. Again, that to me is an obvious way that they could make up for, just like every other state, you know, institutes these sorts of taxes. And so it wouldn't make Wyoming this really tax intensive place like New York or California or Connecticut. It, it would just have a tax, <laughs> you know. And so, again, this to me is not so much a complex economic problem. It's more of an ideological problem and this aversion to any sort of taxing, even if it's liberal people from California moving there, that people that you do not like, people that are gentrifying your state. It's the only blue pocket of this of the state. So this is more of an ideological problem, a stubbornness. But I also view it as a moral problem that the state legislature is choosing to protect and enrich billionaires from California over their own people across the state you know, and workers and families, some of them, my family, who will suffer because of all of these cuts, because of the fossil fuel industry. And so it's really hard, stepping out of my shoes as a scholar, it's really hard for me to square that. But again, I think we need more research on this and we need to kind of look at this with an eye toward policy. And I think people are starting to do that. Dr. Farrell is not the only one suggesting that states diversify their revenue streams. And there certainly is this tax solution, but there's also, you guessed it, a renewable energy solution. I think you would want to see both state and federal investment in economic development that diversifies these economies. It's mainly five states in the West, right? It's, it's New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and Montana. Wyoming and New Mexico are by far the most dependent on oil and gas, but all of those states have tremendous natural resources that attract people for non-exploitative reasons, right? For recreation and just general enjoyment of the outdoors. Um, and so that alone has tremendous value. Um, and there is research out there that shows that, in fact, the conservation of and uh, like promotion of access to those resources brings people in and you bring people in, you bring business in, you bring money into the state and you know your tax base increases and fills some of that void. And at the same time, there's research that shows uh, that extractive industry and especially oil and gas actually in the long term repels people. So, you know, it, it brings heavy industry in for that period when the resource is being developed and extracted, but then that money often goes out of state and that industry winds down and leaves and that doesn't result in a durable economic situation. So what you're seeing in a lot of these states and even the states that are very dependent on oil and gas is a lot of diversification. I mean, the service sector, the IT sector, the general government sector have all grown massively over the years. And the oil and gas sector has seen kind of a continual decline of overall employment. And so 
it, it comes down to incentivizing continued growth in these, you know, light industry and these industries that it bring people and good paying jobs into these states that are, you know, the kind of the jobs of the future. And, and at the same time, a lot of these states have tremendous potential for clean energy production and policies need to be created to balance the incentives between continued reliance on fossil fuels versus transitioning to being energy producing states that, but not producing fossil based energy. Okay, so we have this balance here. We have to bring more renewables to the rural West while also generating revenue from these renewables. How do we both encourage them and charge for them? Here's Julia again. Wyoming is somewhat unique. We tax production of wind. Not many states do, but it shows that you can. I think that there is, uh, you know, expert economists smarter than I am who are going to need to answer the what's the amount of taxation, uh, especially for developing out an industry that still makes sure it's economical um, and that you're not going to be putting in a tax rate or potentially other regulations, which is something that Wyoming has played with as well that stops the growth of the industry uh, before it's even started. And industries that are coming into communities need to start, you know, helping pay their way too. creating jobs is one thing and helping to pay for the services. And especially for the impacts that you might be having roads, for example, county services is an important thing too. There's ways to, uh, I think, tax renewable energy deployment. And certainly there's a lot of good thinking happening. I think about what's that level? Uh, how do you do that? And which states are choosing to do that and which states are then becoming more competitive or not because of those choices. So Wyoming taxes wind and not solar. We're feeling less competitive with wind for a variety of reasons. One being, yeah, we have that production tax. If the resource is the same, right, if the potential energy generation is the same for each company, then you're looking at like, do you have a skilled workforce? You know, what other benefits come from developing Colorado than Wyoming? Uh, and workforce is a, is a piece of that too. I'm sure there's a couple other factors. But I, I do think that we are... Uh, less competitive than other states, even though we have some prime resources. Because the key piece of that is the transmission capacity too. Um, do you have the ability to get that energy back to you know the source, the demand for that energy? For Wyoming, we've always been an energy exporter. A, we send the coal out to be burned at other plants. The coal we do burn in state is also then exported as energy to other states. So we have some potential for transitioning those same transmission lines over to right green electrons if the production can happen. But there's a timing and a scale and, you know, it's not a clean answer. But certainly I would think renewable energy developers want to be going to where there's existing transmission if there's transmission capacity open for them to use. Now it's a question of where to site the renewable energy projects across rural public western lands. The Federal Energy Management Program out of the National Renewable Energy Lab, known as NREL, has a screening map that identifies lands with the highest solar and wind capacity, as well as areas of critical habitat and high environmental concern. So the idea here is that there might be areas that are really sunny, but also ecologically very important. And a sort of classic example of this is desert tortoise habitats in the Southwest. So we wouldn't want to site solar in a place like that with high environmental consequences if there might be less ecologically sensitive land elsewhere. It's a little different because it's more about environmental disturbance. I mean, these projects have big footprints. If they're in the desert, the desert um, ecosystem is very fragile, right? And you put in a large-scale solar array, it's going to take up you know, hundreds of acres, probably thousands in some of them. And so there's very significant environmental concerns around that. And so when you take the potential for smart siting of renewables uh, on public lands and then you know, tie that together with what are rural conservation values, I would say 
absolutely we want to see renewable cited in the correct places, right? Ideally on existing brownfields or disturbed areas outside of the you know crucial wildlife habitats that we have to support our wildlife populations, away from important cultural areas and away from, you know, obviously recreational sites. And I think that's both, I should name the renewables themselves, the, you know, the generation site and the transmission lines that carry that energy to the, um, the demand source as well. In Wyoming, you know, in many places in the rural West where public lands have been used for fossil fuel production for decades, you know, we're, we're dealing with incredible habitat loss and fragmentation for wildlife um, caused by most notably oil and gas production. And we're going to be dealing with that pollution from that production for decades to come. And so I think the solution here is not to take a new cleaner source of energy because the electrons are green, continue to degrade habitats or fragment habitats, but rather to say, let's, we're using the lands in in a better way here by producing clean energy, but let's be sure we're still putting it in the right places on those lands and not continuing to amplify habitat loss and degradation. Of course, for so many of our listeners, environmental concerns are top of mind, right? We're fighting climate change, and so environmental protection is intricately tied into that. But one such unique part of this clean energy transition is that we can learn from the injustices of the fossil fuel-based energy system. We can use this as an opportunity to build justice into the new energy system. Recall back to our conversation with Shalonda Baker. She talked about concerns that renewable energy projects could displace or decrease quality of life for some. Here, Julia and Josh again address those very concerns in the context of U.S. public lands. I think that when you have a community faced with a developer coming in saying, it's here that I want to put this generation site, the solar farm, these wind turbines, and we can talk about how I do it, but it's going to be here, then you're already closed into a box. I think the states, the communities that can look ahead and say, look, if you come to us, we want you to be here, here, and here, and not there. So choose from this selection of sites. And it's driven by more of a community vision, proactive planning. Maybe you've run some modeling about the wildlife habitats and the desires of the community. You're starting at least off in a better place than in the reactionary space of a developer saying, it's going to be here, and I'm going to go through a process to hear what you want to think about it, but I'm not moving it. And having agencies that are willing to look at alternative sites, I think is important as well. And there's values to that too, that I should name. It's probably not only rural Western conservation values. These are going to be pretty human values that, you know, how do we do the process? You know, is it fair? Are we holding decision makers accountable? Are they representing the communities that are involved? Uh, Are the communities who are impacted asked to be at the table? And I think that those kind of procedural values are ones that uh, cannot be discounted when we're either we're looking at A, phasing out of fossil fuels or B, phasing in um, other uses of our public lands and including possible you know, greater renewable development. There's no question that one should avoid making the same mistake of looking at the cheapest places or the places where it is anticipated that communities might have the least ability to engage or push back against projects, which inevitably is poorer communities, making sure that communities, regardless of where a project is proposed, have full access to you know a public and transparent process um, so that their voices and concerns are heard. And then that is a much, that would be to some degree a much different world than the world of fossil fuels on public lands, because the public process around that is often very um, truncated and not completely, but fairly a rubber stamp process. Communities, you know, rightfully so, often voice a lot of opposition. Inciting renewable projects on beloved local recreation areas. Just wanted to throw that in there. So I think from a policy perspective, what needs to happen 
and what what has been proposed and what there's legislation that has been out there and is bipartisan we're really trying to get past it's not necessarily popular on all sides but that aims to identify the lands with a couple things high energy potential relatively easy access to transmission and low social conflict low environmental conflict and there's a, there's a good amount of land out there that's like that. You know, there's degraded lands, there's lands without major environmental concerns, obviously lands close to transmission lines. But there is not currently a law that requires all of that to happen. And there is not a completely coherent policy framework that ensures that will all happen. And, you know, developers, for their own economic reasons, often have their eyes on certain areas that don't fit those criteria. And right now there's no incentive structure behind encouraging them to look to those areas and, and actually submit project proposals for that. Um, so it's a, it's an area that needs some policy behind it. It needs some congressional direction, I, I would say. So there is this proposed act called the Public Land Renewable Energy Development Act. It seeks to find and develop these priority areas. And we're starting to maybe see some action on that front. So the Department of the Interior has a goal of 25 gigawatts of renewable energy public land siting to meet by 2025. And one way to make sure that this energy is sited properly could be to create an office of renewable energy siting or permitting, which is all included in that proposed act, the Public Land Renewable Energy Development Act. That's something we'll be keeping a close eye on in the coming months to see how we can make sure the siting of renewable energies is done most equitably and ecologically sensitive. So there are several ways the federal government can catalyze the transition to clean energy using the executive branch, which can use rural lands. One major point we didn't talk about this episode is rural Western indigenous reservations and the relationship that reservations have with energy development. Don't worry, we'll cover all of that in our next episode of the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast. So tune back in for more. This episode was written by Vero Borgmeyer and by me, Katie Ebinger. It was edited by Ryan McAvoy, and our executive producer is Vero Borgmeyer. Thanks as well to Heather Fitzgerald for her production support. Our web design graphics were created by Hank Van Assen Designs, and our theme music is Reality Cartwheeled by Dr. Turtle. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at cbay.podcast at yale.edu. And on the website, you can find more information as well as our source list. And that is plural. So it's cbay.yale.edu forward slash podcasts.